Hello, and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East Soccer, or Middle East Soccer Podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. China's dazzling infrastructure and energy-driven Belt and Road Initiative, a $1 trillion investment across Eurasia and beyond, has lost its shine. Increasingly, China's leveraging of the initiative is being perceived by a growing number of recipients and critics alike as a geopolitical power play, a tool to shape a new world order partly populated by autocrats and authoritarians and progressively characterized by intrusive surveillance, potential debt traps, and perceived as a self-serving way to address domestic overcapacity. As a result, China's most immediate problem is a growing perception that its principle of win-win economic cooperation often amounts to little more than China wins twice, both economically and geopolitically. It is forcing China to focus in the short term less on the great game, the rivalry with the United States and its allies for dominance in a swath of land stretching from the China Sea to Europe's Atlantic coast, and more on ensuring that it does not lose hard-won ground. Ironically, China's immediate allies, as well as rivals, in efforts to maintain its status are not exclusively the United States, India, or Japan, but also its newly assertive, geopolitically ambitious friends in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Iran. Nowhere is this truer than in Pakistan, which, with its Prime Minister Imran Khan, and together with Malaysia and Myanmar, is leading the charge in resisting China's approach to the Belt and Road and seeking to change its focus. A $45 billion plus crown jewel of the Belt and Road, Pakistan is insisting that Chinese investment in what both countries have dubbed the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or CPEC, shift from infrastructure and energy to agriculture, job creation, and the enabling of third-party investment, but primarily from countries of the Gulf. Fueling Chinese concern, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have exploited Chinese irritation with Pakistan's demands, as well as initial criticism of the crackdown on Turkic Muslims in the northwestern province of Xinjiang to their advantage. Massive aid and investment to the tune of $30 billion in balance of payment support, deferred oil import payments, and investment in the troubled Pakistani province of Balochistan, which borders Iran, has helped the Khan government to avoid approaching the International Monetary Fund, IMF, cap in hand to bail it out of an imminent financial crisis. It also shielded China, which refrained from rushing to Pakistan's financial aid from potentially embarrassing disclosures of the financial terms of CPEC-related projects that the IMF was demanding as part of any bailout. Media reports said that Pakistan had told the IMF about having to pay China $40 billion over 20 years for $26.5 billion in Chinese funding of CPEC-related projects. The official disclosures 
would have likely reinforced notions that the Belt and Road is less benign than China asserts. China worried, however, that greater Saudi and UAE influence in a restive region on Iran's border, which could serve as a launch pad for possible efforts to destabilize the Islamic Republic, may complicate the security of its massive investment and suck the People's Republic into the escalating maelstrom of Saudi-UAE-Iranian rivalry. China and Saudi Arabia were careful not to raise the issue of Pakistan during Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's recent visit to Beijing that was designed to put on display ever closer cooperation and shore up Prince Mohammed's image tarnished by the Yemen war and the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Bolstered by Gulf support, Pakistan has put its money where its mouth is. In January, Pakistan asked China to shelve a joint $2 billion coal power project because of its expense. Pakistan planning and development minister Mahdoum Khusro Bakhtiar advised his Chinese counterpart that the 1,320 megawatt Rahim Yar Khan project was not a priority. The government was reportedly planning to slash hundreds more CPEC-related projects. Two Chinese companies that drafted a master plan to turn the strategic Baloch port of Gwadar into a smart city, meanwhile complained to the government about delays in the project's approval. Pakistan was just the last, albeit most crucial, node on the Belt and Road to challenge China's commercial and geopolitical approach. Malaysia has suspended or canceled $26 billion in Chinese-funded projects. Speaking during a visit to Beijing, Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir bin Mohammed warned the Chinese, you don't want a situation where there's a new version of colonialism happening because poor countries are unable to compete with rich countries in terms of just, open, free trade. Mahathir was echoing his earlier assertion that we gain nothing from Chinese investment and risk selling off the country to foreigners. At about the same time, Myanmar was negotiating a significant scaling back of a Chinese-funded port project on the Bay of Bengal, from one that would cost $7.3 billion to a more modest development that would cost $1.3 billion, in a bid to avoid shouldering an unsustainable debt. Myanmar feared that the debt burden would ultimately force it to follow in Sri Lanka's footsteps, with debt having left Sri Lanka with no choice but to hand over its strategically located Hambantota port to the Asian giant. China was also pressuring Myanmar to revive the suspended 3.6 billion Mietzone Dam project, which if built as previously designed, would flood 600 square kilometers of forest land in northern Kachin state and export 90% of the power produced to China. In return, China reportedly offered to support Myanmar, which has been condemned by the United Nations, Western countries, and some Muslim nations for its repressive campaign against the Rohingya, some 700,000 of whom fled to Bangladesh last year. 
Similarly, recent protests against the forced resettlement of eight Nepali villages persuaded China International Water and Electric Cooperation, CWE, a subsidiary of China Three Gorges, to consider pulling out of a 750-megawatt hydropower project. CWE said it was looking at canceling the project because it was financially unfeasible. Ambivalence towards China and its signature driving Belt and Road is perhaps most complex in Central Asia, where a heavy soup made of pulled noodles, meat, and vegetables symbolizes the region's close cultural and ethnic ties with the People's Republic's repressed Turkic and Way Muslims. The soup also explains growing Central Asian unease with China's re-education campaign in Xinjiang and the Belt and Road, named Ashlan Fu, and introduced to Kyrgyzstan in the late 19th century by Dungans, exiled Chinese Way Muslims who fled over the Tian Shan Mountains after a failed rebellion in 1877, the soup has become a staple of Kyrgyz cuisine. Members of Kyrgyzstan's far-right Kyrkchoro, or 40 Nights Group, protested in December and January outside the Chinese embassy in the Kyrgyz capital of Bishkek against the inclusion of ethnic Kyrgyz in the up to one million Muslims allegedly detained in re-education camps in Xinjiang as part of the Chinese crackdown. In a sign of the times, Kyrkchoro, a nationalist group that has gained popularity and is believed to have the support of the Kyrgyz ministries of interior and labor, migration and youth, and the National Security Committee, GKNB, focused its protest exclusively on ethnic Kyrgyz in Chinese detention. Acting as vigilantes, Kirchoro raided clubs in Bishkek four years ago in a campaign against prostitution, accusing Chinese nationals of promoting vice. In a video of an attack on a karaoke club, a Kirchoro leader showed a receipt that featured a girl as one of the consumed items. Yet while standing up for the rights of ethnic Kyrgyz and Kyrgyz nationals, Kirchoro has also called for Uyghurs, the Turkic Muslims that populate Xinjiang, to be boosted out of Bishkek's most popular closing bazaar and replaced by ethnic Kyrgyz. Kirchoro further demanded the expulsion of illegal Chinese migrants. It insisted that the government check the documents of migrants, including those who had obtained Kyrgyz citizenship over the last decade, among them 268 Chinese nationals who in majority were of Kyrgyz descent. Kyrgyz's contradictory demands and claims reflect not only a global trend towards ethnic and religious nationalism with undertones of xenophobia, but also concern that Belt and Road related projects serve Chinese, rather than Kyrgyz and Central Asian interests. The Kyrgyz government recently reported that 35,215 Chinese citizens had arrived in the country in 2018, many of them as construction workers on Chinese-funded projects. Political scientist Colleen Wood noted 
that social media activists were linking criticism of Chinese commercial practices with China's crackdown in Xinjiang. One widely shared image, which declares, don't let anyone take your land, depicts a strong fist adorned with the Kyrgyz flag stopping a spindly hand marked by a Chinese flag from snatching factories and a field, Wood wrote in The Diplomat. Wood said that some activists compared Chinese practice to the 2002 demarcation of the Chinese-Kyrgyz border, during which the Central Asian nation handed over 1,250 square kilometers of land to China. Another Facebook page, We're Against Chinese Aggression, posted articles about Chinese mining companies operating in Kyrgyzstan, which are a target of Kyrgyz protesters, alongside articles depicting the intrusiveness of the crackdown in Xinjiang. The Kyrgyz government, much like the vast majority of Muslim countries, has so far avoided taking China to task on its crackdown for fear, for fear of jeopardizing its relations with the People's Republic. Kyrgyz President Surumbai Jinbekov insisted that the ethnic Kyrgyz of China are citizens of China who obey the laws of their country. How can we intervene in their domestic matters? We can't. If Kazakhstan, where the issue of ethnic Kazakhs detained in China has flared up, is anything to go by, the Kyrgyz government is walking a tightrope. Kyrgyz national, Asila Alinkulova, recently established the Committee to Protect the Kyrgyz People in China. After her husband, Sherbek Dulut Khan, a Chinese-born Muslim, vanished in October during a business trip to Xinjiang. Dulut Khan's company subsequently advised Mrs. Alinkulova that her husband had been sent away to study in a camp. Short of a reunion with her husband, there is little that is likely to convince Mrs. Alinkulova or the relatives of thousands of other Central Asians, including up to 7,500 Kazakhs, that Chinese policy towards Muslims is benign and benefiting the community and the region's progress. That, in turn, will not make things easier for the Kyrgyz and other Muslim governments at a time when ethnic and cultural identities in a nationalistic and at times xenophobic environment are becoming prevalent. Kyrgyz attitudes towards Ashlan Fu may be the barometer. Anti-Chinese sentiment in Central Asia simmers at the surface, with Tajikistan having become the first Central Asian nation to be trapped in debt. As a result, Tajikistan was forced to cede control of some 1,158 square kilometers of disputed territory in exchange for having an undisclosed amount of Chinese debt written off. Scholars of international relations, Robert Daly and Matthew Rojansky noted on a recent trip to Russia, Kazakhstan, and China that was, that was intended to guard responses to the Belt and Road that Eurasian nations were eager to benefit from Chinese investment but wary of Beijing's intentions. We found an eagerness to participate in projects that support national development, but deep resistance 
to any westward or northward expansion of China's practices, ideas, or population. Neither Russia or Kazakhstan hope that China's power will increase with its investments, the scholars said. Debt has been a focal point of criticism of the Belt and Road. It has allowed China to fly under the radar on other controversial issues, such as its support for the kind of dirty power projects in Central and South Asia and Africa, which the People's Republic has banned at home because of the increased car cost of carbon pricing and air pollution regulations associated with coal-fired plants. BRI has the potential to transform economies in China's partner countries, yet it could also tip the world into catastrophic climate change, what Ch warned China environment expert Isabel Hilton, noting that coal power-driven projects was long at the heart of China's economic development. The more than 70 countries that have signed up to the Belt and Road have an average GDP of around one-third of that of China. If they adopt China's development model, which results in a doubling of China's greenhouse gas emissions in the first decade of the century, it would make the emissions targets in the Paris Agreement impossible, added climate change scholar Nicholas Stern. Chinese President Xi Jinping has capitalized on the American withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, the landmark United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, on greenhouse gas emissions, mitigation, adaptation, and finance, by projecting China as a leader in environmental good governance. In 2016, Xi called for a green, healthy, intelligent, and peaceful Belt and Road. <clears throat> he urged participating countries to deepen cooperation in environmental protection, intensify ecological preservation, and build a green silk road. On paper, Chinese environmental good governance looks good. The problem is that the government's guidelines are non-binding and often ignored. As a result, Qi has yet to back up words with deeds. China is developing some 240 coal projects with a total generating capacity of 251 gigawatts in 25 countries that include developments in Bangladesh, Pakistan, Kenya, Ghana, Malawi, and Zimbabwe, and is also funding new coal capacity in Egypt, Tanzania, and Zambia. Many of those projects do not incorporate carbon capture technology that would align them with global efforts to control climate change. Chinese financial institutions are the world's largest financiers of overseas coal plants, investing $15 billion in coal projects from 2013 to 2016 through international development funds, with another $13 billion in proposed funding. Chinese firms are involved in the construction, ownership, or financing of at least 16% of all coal-fired power stations under development outside China, according to a report published by environmental advocacy groups, Coal Swarm, Sierra Club, and Greenpeace. Wang Wei, a climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace East Asia, warned that Chinese banks and companies' investments in coal abroad 
are a cause of major concern because of their potential to lock in more climate warming emissions in our carbon constrained world. If China wants to enhance its leadership on climate and ecological civilization, Chinese companies and banks' investments must steer away from coal and towards renewable alternatives such as wind and solar. Hilton notes that the heavy price China paid for its coal addiction in water security, acid rain, and air pollution, coupled with the country's gradual shift from an industry to a service-based economy, has forced it to create ecological safeguards and emphasize clean, green energy. The problem, Hilton said, is that while China is making commendable efforts to clean up at home and reduce its carbon emissions, the Belt and Road Initiative threatens to lock China's partners into the same high emission development that China is now trying to exit. Symptomatic of the China-centric focus of the Belt and Road, China's push for dirty energy beyond its own borders is a bid to support its coal and energy companies that faced a bleak future because of reform at home that emphasized renewable energy instead of coal. Quoting energy and environmental scholar Kelly Sims Gallagher, Hilton said that more than half of 50 Chinese financed coal-fired power plants constructed overseas between 2001 and 2016 used low-efficiency, subcritical coal technology. Together, the plants were expected to release nearly 600 million metric tons of carbon dioxide a year, equivalent to 11% of total American emissions in 2015. Hilton said that by building new coal plants along the Belt and Road, China is creating risks for the countries that host these projects, risks most of them can ill afford. If these new coal plants continue to operate, they will make it much more difficult for poor countries to meet their climate goals under the Paris Agreement. And far from offering a cheap energy option, they will become a financial burden, either to the governments or consumers, even as these plants lock out cheaper and cleaner alternatives. A series of reports by Western think tanks, coupled with official American warnings of the pitfalls of the Belt and Road, have, aided to, have added to China's woes, contributed to the People's Republic being put on the defensive. They have added to the domestic debate in China itself. Xi's pledge last year of $60 billion in new loans to Africa triggered a wave of grumbling in a sign of mounting popular hostility to his, to his international ambitions and to the tightening of political controls at home. One blogger asserted that the money would be sufficient to fund China's cash-strapped education ministry for three years. The critical comments on social media were quickly deleted. All of this has not stopped the drumbeat of criticism from outside of China. China is not in it to help countries out. They're in it to grab their assets, warned Ray Washburn, president and CEO of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC, an intergovernmental agency that channels American private capital into overseas development projects. 
Washburn accused China of intentionally plunging recipient countries into debt, then going after their rare earths and minerals and things that as collateral for their loans. That view persuaded Greenland, helped along by U.S. pressure to select a Danish rather than a Chinese company to build and upgrade three airports. The big fear is that even a small Chinese investment will amount to a large part of Greenland's GDP, giving China an outsized influence that can be used for other purposes, the Danish foreign and defense policy scholar John Rabe Clemenson. A study by the Washington-based Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, argued that the Belt and Road was driven by interest groups within and outside China that are skewing President Xi's signature foreign policy vision. The study asserted that the positioning of the initiative persuaded Chinese local and regional authorities, as well as companies, to brand their activities as Belt and Road related in order to gain economic and political advantage. Similarly, Washington-based Center for Global Development warned that 23 of 68 countries benefiting from Belt and Road investments were significantly or highly vulnerable to debt distress. The center said eight of 23 vulnerable countries, Pakistan, Tajikistan, Djibouti, Kyrgyzstan, Laos, the Maldives, Mongolia, Montenegro, and Tajikistan were particularly at risk. Djibouti already owes 82% of its foreign debt to China, while China is expected to account for 71% of Kyrgyz debt as Belt and Road-related projects are implemented. There is concern that debt problems will create an unfavorable degree of dependency on China as a creditor. Increasing debt and China's role in managing bilateral debt problems has already exacerbated internal and bilateral tensions in some Belt and Road countries, the report said. Rex Tillerson, a former American Secretary of State, echoed the center's concerns during a visit to Africa while still in office in March 2018. China encourages dependency using opaque contracts, predatory loan practices, and corrupt deals that mire nations in debt and undercut their sovereignty denying them their long-term self-sustaining growth. Chinese investment does have the potential to address Africa's infrastructure gap, but its approach has led to mounting debt and few, if any, jobs in most countries, Tillerson said. The Belt and Road's geopolitics are a double-edged sword. Geopolitics is what many believe is its driver. Yet geopolitics is also its potential Achilles heel. The arrival in mid-December of the USS John C. Stennis aircraft carrier group in the Gulf had on the surface nothing to do with the Belt and Road and everything to do with American efforts to increase pressure on Iran. Yet Pakistan's mounting dependence on Saudi Arabia and the UAE, coupled with the American campaign intended to curb Iran's regional projection increasingly raises the stakes for China beyond the Trump administration's efforts 
to force China and others to comply with its tough economic sanctions against the Islamic Republic. The carrier group's presence in the Gulf, the first by an American aircraft carrier in eight months, raised the specter of a potential military conflagration on Balochistan's doorstep. It coincided with a suicide attack on an Islamic Revolutionary Guard headquarters in the Indian-backed Iranian port city of Chabahar, a mere 70 kilometers up the coast from the Chinese-backed port of Gwadar, which killed two people and left 40 wounded. The attack raised the specter of Saudi and or American covert support for militants in Iran, a keynote in the Belt and Road's land link to Europe. Saudi and Iranian media reported that Ansa al furqan a shadowy Iranian Sunni jihadi group, which Iran asserts is supported by Saudi Arabia, along with the United States and Israel, had claimed responsibility for the attack. Saudi-based pan-Arab Ashark al newspaper suggested that the attack reflects the anger harbored by the city's Baloch minority against the government. The paper said, the Iranian government had expelled thousands of Baloch families from Chabahar and replaced them with Persians in a bid to change the city's demography. It asserted that Iran was granting nationality to Afghan Shiites who had fought in Syria and Iraq and was moving them to Chabahar. The paper went on to say that anti-regime Baloch movements have recently intensified their operations against Tehran in an attempt to deter it from carrying out its plan to expel and marginalize the Baloch from the ancestral regions. The Saudi media reports stroked with staunch Saudi support for Washington's confrontational approach toward Iran. Pakistani militants say the kingdom has pumped large amounts of money into militant, ultra-conservative, Sunni Muslim, anti-Shiite, and anti-Iranian religious seminaries along the border separating Balochistan from the Iranian province of Sistan and Balochistan, which is home to Chabahar. The funding was designed to create the building blocks for a potential covert effort to destabilize Iran by stirring unrest among its ethnic minorities. Moreover, Saudi think tank, the Arabian Gulf Center for Iranian Studies, renamed the International Institute of Iranian Studies and believed to be backed by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, argued in a study that Chabahar posed a direct threat to the Arab Gulf states that called for immediate countermeasures. Written by Mohammed Hassan Hussein Bor, identified as an Iranian political researcher, the study warned that Chabahar posed a threat because it would enable Iran to increase its market share in India for its oil exports at the expense of Saudi Arabia, raise foreign investment in the Islamic Republic, increase government revenues, and allow Iran to project power in the Gulf and the Indian Ocean. Noting the vast expanses of Iran's Sistan and Balochistan province, Hussein Bor went on to say that it would be a formidable challenge, if not impossible, for the Iranian government to protect such long distances and secure Chabahar in the face of widespread Baluch opposition, particularly if the opposition is supported by Iran's regional adversaries and world powers.
The Pakistani government's insistence on refocusing CPEC amounts to far more than a commercial and economic reorientation of Chinese investment. It challenges the core of the Belt and Road, at least as it relates to Pakistan, in terms of what some critics have termed a neo-colonial approach. It also casts a shadow over China's hope that economic development in Xinjiang, fueled by linking the province to its neighbors, will help it achieve the sinicizing of Turkic Muslims. A leaked plan for CPEC detailed not only benefits that China would derive from its investment in Pakistan, but the way Pakistan would be turned, even more than it already is, into a surveillance state in which freedoms of expression and media are manipulated. It also suggested the degree to which the Belt and Road was designed to establish, establish China as Eurasia's dominant power based on economics, as well as the adoption of measures that undermine democracy or inhibit political transition in autocracies. The plan appeared to position Pakistan as a raw material supplier for China, an export market for Chinese products and labor, and an experimental ground for the export of the surveillance state China is rolling out in Xinjiang. It envisioned Chinese state-owned companies leasing thousands of hectares of agricultural land to set up demonstration projects in areas ranging from seed varieties to irrigation technology. Chinese agricultural companies would be offered free capital and loans from various Chinese ministries, as well as the China Development Bank. The plan projected that the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps would introduce mechanization and new technologies to Pakistani livestock breeding, development of hybrid varieties, and precision irrigation. Pakistan would effectively become a raw material supplier rather than an added value producer, a prerequisite for a sustainable textile industry. The plan further saw that Pakistan textile sector as a supplier of materials like yarn and coarse cloth to textile manufacturers in Xinjiang. China can make the most of the Pakistani market in cheap raw materials to develop the textiles and garments industry and help soak up surplus labor forces in Kashgar, the plan said. Chinese companies would be offered preferential treatment with regard to land, tax, logistics, and services, as well as enterprise income tax tariff reduction, and exemption and sales tax rate incentives. In other economic sectors, such as household appliances and mining, Chinese companies would exploit their presence to expand market share. In areas like cement, building materials, fertilizer, and agricultural technologies, the plan called for the building of infrastructure and the developing of a policy environment to facilitate the entry of Chinese companies. A full system of monitoring and surveillance would be built in Pakistani cities to ensure law and order. The system would involve the deployment of explosive detectors and scanners to cover major roads, case-prone areas, and crowded places in urban areas to conduct real-time monitoring and 24-hour video recording a national fiber optic backbone 
would be built for internet traffic, as well as the terrestrial distribution of broadcast media that would cooperate with their Chinese counterparts in the dissemination of Chinese culture. The plan described the backbone as a cultural transmission carrier that would serve to further enhance mutual understanding between the two peoples and the traditional friendship between the two countries. The plan identified as risks to CPEC Pakistani politics, such as competing parties, religion, tribes, terrorists, and Western intervention, as well as security. The security situation is the worst in recent years, the plan said. Its solution is stepped up surveillance rather than policies targeting root causes and appears to question the vibrancy of a system in which competition between parties and interest groups is the name of the game. The risks have been driven home in attacks on Chinese targets and rejection of CPIC by Baluch nationalists who have seen little benefit to resource-rich, sparsely Baluch populated Balochistan itself and fear that Chinese economic dominance will render the achievement of their rights even more difficult. According to Financial Times columnist Jamil Andalini, China is at risk of inadvertently embarking on its own colonial adventure in Pakistan, the biggest recipient of Belt and Road investment, and once the East India Company's old stomping ground. Pakistan is now virtually a client state of China. Many within the country worry openly that its reliance on Beijing is already turning it into a colony of its huge neighbor. The risks that the, that the relationship could turn problematic are greatly increased by Beijing's ignorance of how China is perceived abroad and its reluctance to study history through a non-ideological lens. It is easy to envisage a scenario in which militant attacks on Chinese projects overwhelm the Pakistani military and China decides to openly deploy the People's Liberation Army to project to protect its people and assets. That is how win-win investment projects can quickly become the foundations of empire, Andalini said. In an ironic twist, China's taking control of critical national infrastructure in companies trapped by Chinese debt amounts to the People's Republic adopting the same approach that it feels lies at the core of its humiliation in the 19th century. China is replicating the practices used against it in the European colonial period, which began with the 1839-1860 Opium Wars and ended with the 1949 Communist takeover, a period that China bitterly refers to as its century of humiliation, said Indian strategist Brahma Chelane. Chelane argues that just as European imperial powers employed gunboat diplomacy to open new markets and colonial outposts, China uses sovereign debt to bend other states to its will without having to fire a single shot. Like the opium the British exported to China, the easy loans China offers are addictive. And because China chooses its projects according to the long-term strategic value, they may yield short-term returns 
that are insufficient for countries to repay their debts. This gives China added leverage, which it can use, say, to force borrowers to swap debt for equity, thereby expanding China's global footprint by trapping a growing number of countries in debt certitude, Chilene said. The Indian strategist noted that the terms for a 99-year lease of the Sri Lankan port of Hambantota resembled those European powers imposed for the lease of Chinese ports like Hong Kong or its lease of Australia's deep water port of Darwin. Kenya's crushing debt to China threatens to turn its busy port of Mombasa, the gateway to East Africa, into another Hambantota. Chelane said that these experiences should serve as a warning that the Belt and Road is essentially an imperial project that aims to bring to fruition the mythical Middle Kingdom. States caught in debt bondage to China risk losing both their most valuable natural assets and their very sovereignty. The new imperial giant's velvet glove cloaks and iron fist, one with the strength to squeeze the vitality out of smaller countries, Chilene says. China's supposed oblivious to the potential impact on recipients and the standing of its own economic, commercial, and geopolitical approach appears to be rooted in President Xi's rewriting of history and reality spin that threatens to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Launching the Belt and Road Initiative in a speech in Kazakhstan in 2013, Xi suggested that the initiative constituted a revival of China's century-old relationship with Eurasia. More than 2,100 years ago, Chinese imperial envoy Zhang Tian was sent to Central Asia twice to open the door to friendly contacts between China and Central Asian countries, as well as the transcontinental Silk Road linking East and West, Xi told his audience. In Indonesia, a month later, Xi reminded the country's parliament that Southeast Asia has since ancient times been an important hub along the ancient maritime Silk Road. Scholars Daly and Rojansky noted that the historic Silk Road was never centered on China and that it served both commercial and military purposes. The term Silk Road was coined in 1877 by a German geographer to connote the historic phenomenon of Eurasian trade rather than a particular route, the scholars said. They suggested that Eurasian nations had not forgotten that historically Chinese expansion westwards had often been violent, a fact that Xi chose to overlook in his projection of the Belt and Road. It was moreover not immediately clear that China's branding, cash, and ambition can overcome the uneven development, political and cultural diversity, age-old hatreds, and daunting geography of the Belt and Road, Daly and Rojansky said. Xi's projection of a China-centric world is reflected in the country's media, which positioned the Belt and Road as a vehicle to cement China's place in the world, as, that, as well as that of the Communist Party's rule despite paying lip service to the principle of a win-win proposition. 
Chinese ambitions are further evident in its efforts to internationalize its currency, the renminbi, as well as the inclusion of elements of Chinese surveillance state and the propagation of Chinese culture through local media in investment target countries. They are also apparent in the creation of special Chinese courts to adjudicate Belt and Road disputes. Moreover, China announced the establishment of a news agency to, to coordinate its foreign aid program in 2018. The new agency is part of an effort to protect China's global influence more effectively and to increase Communist Party control. Taking issue with the Chinese approach, the Center for Global Development suggested that China and recipients of Beijing's largesse would be better served if the People's Republic adopted a multilateral approach to Belt and Road-related funding, rather than insisting on doing it alone. Scott Morris, a former U.S. Treasury official and co-author of the Center's report, said, the way forward demands a clear policy framework aligned with global standards, something that has been absent from China's lending practices to date. Whether Chinese officials have the will to pursue this approach will be critical in determining the ultimate success or failure of the Belt and Road. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. A written version of this podcast is on my blog, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer at midisoccer.blogspot.com. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. All the best and take care.